Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. My Bible is open now to Romans chapter 13. I invite your attention there. Book of Romans chapter 13. Our message today taken from verses 8 through 10. And the title of the message, The Perpetual Debt of Love. The Apostle Paul, having concluded his explanation of the doctrine of justification by faith at the end of chapter 11, launches into application of that doctrine in the 12th and 13th chapter. I don't know about you, but I've had a great time being reminded about how our transformed lives affect relationships. First of all, in chapter 12, it affects our relationship to God. God's no longer the man upstairs. God's no longer that great spirit in the sky. He is the one to whom we have to do. He is the one that we come before every day and recognize we're no longer on. We've been bought with a price. and We view ourselves as living sacrifices unto him. We report for duty every day to our master. It affects also our relationship with other believers. We view ourselves no longer as some independent operator, but we view ourselves as connected to other Christians in the body of Christ, he being our head. And we work in unison with those others to bring him the most glory. It also has, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, an effect upon our relationship with unbelievers. We no longer view them as obstacles to our happiness or fulfillment, but potential trophies of God's grace. We pray for them, we evangelize them, and we seek their best. Even those who spitefully use us. The scripture says, as much as is within us, we are to live at peace with all men. We know that some people will not have peace with believers. They're determined to hate us, but we're going to make them hate the kindest, most generous people they know. And then last week, we saw that it even affects our relationship with human government, that we are to honor those in authority, not just as men pleasers, not just in their presence, but we genuinely seek their best, we pray for them, and we seek their salvation. We submit to the authority that God has put in place. Well, this morning we want to examine the believer's relationship with, of all things, money, and then tie all these relationships together under the umbrella of love. So let's read our text. Romans 13, verse 8. Paul writes to Christians, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading of his word. Owe nothing to anyone. Now, taken out of context, that seems strange that Paul would say such a thing about money and finances right in the middle of this great a thesis on deep doctrine, but when we pan out a little bit, we see how it's tied together from verse 7. So look at verse 7 from last week. He says, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So you see, in this section, which gives instructions concerning how Christians are to relate to human government, you remember that one of the primary commandments or applications of that principle is that Christians are to pay our taxes. 
In other words, we are not to defraud the government of what we owe them. Now, Paul in verse 8 takes it a step farther. He says, not only are we not to defraud the government of tax payments, we are to pay all of our bills and obligations and debts, no matter to whom they are owned. And so read it that way. Owe nothing to anyone simply means pay your debts, Christians. Now, some have taken that verse to be an ironclad prohibition against debt of any kind, that all debt is sin. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's why we need to study the whole counsel of God and read the Bible in context. In fact, when we read the Bible in context, we find that both the Old and New Testament assumes the reality of borrowing and lending. It does give us many warnings, and it gives us a few prohibitions as it relates to debt. What is prohibited is predatory lending, that is the abusing of the poor, those who are desperate, charging them exorbitant interest rates. We call that usury, and it's forbidden in the Bible. Here's some caution, though, to all who would borrow money. Scripture says the borrower becomes a slave of the lender. That is, the one who is in debt is a person who is bound. You've all seen that when you've been in debt, either uh, commercial debt, credit card, maybe even a car payment that's a little too high for you, and you would rather do this thing or you would rather do that thing, but you can't because you're bound by the debt. This has to be paid before we consider anything else. And, and so if you're not careful, you'll find yourself in total bondage to debt. Jesus uses parables that speak of borrowing and lending. So he doesn't prohibit it. In fact, he just assumes that it exists. And because it exists, he says, here's how we need to deal with it. And under the place for the answer of how Christians are to deal with debt, I think you can just write in Psalm 37, 21, which says this, the wicked person borrows and does not repay. The wicked person borrows and does not repay. By the way, there's a commandment in the Old Testament that says thou shalt not steal. Now stealing and dishonesty can take on many forms. And one of the ways it takes on form is when someone takes out a loan and doesn't pay it back. Scripture puts him in the category of a wicked person, someone who's a thief. So pay your debt, Christian. Now, I want to spend a few moments this morning discussing how we at First Baptist Church of Keller prayerfully apply these verses about debt and financing um, in, in our lives. Um, you might have noticed that in the 23 years I have preached from this pulpit, I've never preached a sermon on tithing. Now you uh, Baptists grew up hearing about tithing, a tithe is 10%. By the way, you need to hear that I practice tithing, which I view as training wheels. When my kids were small, they wanted to ride a bicycle. We bought one with training wheels. But when they got older and were more confident, we wanted to get past that. We took off the training wheels and off they went. Well, I view tithing as a good discipline to teach people how to be generous. But I think the New Testament concept goes beyond the tithe to what I call generosity or grace giving is what we teach here. Um, but here's the thing about debt. When you have debt, it limits how generous you can be. Because you might have a friend in need, or you might have a building project at the church you'd like to contribute to, but God has already said, pay your bills. And so it limits you. And then when you're free of that debt, then you have all kind of freedom to be as generous as you'd like to be. So one of the reasons we avoid debt, and should, and deep debt, is generosity. Generosity. 
Let me say this about debt. Wise borrowing can be a useful tool. We all enjoyed this building, would you agree? Went back and looked at some of our documents from 1985 when this building was completed at a cost of $1 million. You think we could build this building for a million dollars today? I'll tell you no, because just a couple years ago, we had a hailstorm that uh, ruined our roof here in our beautiful facility. All of it had to be replaced, and you know what the bill came to? $3 million. Thank the Lord for insurance, right? Thank the Lord for wise financial practices of those whose shoulders we stand upon. So, so yes, there's been some debt here, but thank the Lord, as of now, we are debt-free. In fact, a few years ago, uh, we had been working very hard as a congregation to get out of debt and paying extra towards the principal. And uh, we saw on the horizon that light, right, that this is going to become a reality sooner rather than later. So we put together a vision team to answer the question, so what? <laughs> we're debt free, so what? Well, well, the question was, now that we're free to be more generous and do more things, what might that look like? And a lot of these programs and church plants that you're hearing about week by week and month by month are the result of being debt free. And we thank the Lord for that freedom. But again, we're not saying all debt is sin. In fact, the Bible talks about investing, about taking uh, money for capital to start business. And, and I think that what the Bible prohibits is using debt foolishly to be greedy. You know what Adrian Rogers used to say? He says, God in the Bible has promised to meet all of our needs, not all of our greeds. And he's right. So it's not wrong to invest in the kingdom of God even, borrowing money, so long as you are wise about it. And I think being wise means we get the most favorable rate we can, the most favorable terms we can, and we pay it off as quickly as possible. In our budget, we have provision for paying off any debt out of the budget and extra against principal. I think that's wise. In fact, out of that vision committee that I talked about a moment ago came two recommendations as it related to debt. Moving forward, though we have no debt now, if we ever take on any debt, here's the rules for that. Number one, we have to make a 50% down payment. We have to raise 50% of whatever we expect to spend up front. And secondly, if we do take on debt, it can never be more than twice our annual budget. Now, the rule of thumb in the business world is three times, but we want to come below that and, and stay at two times. Now, none of that is magical. It's just our attempt to put some fences and some boundaries around debt and be wise, as the Bible instructs us to be wise in all things. Now, that's way more than you wanted to know. I know that. But I know that some of you are also new to the church, and you weren't here then, and you need to hear that. I think it's apropos because next Sunday morning, Lord willing, our building and grounds committee is going to stand behind this pulpit and, and bring a recommendation to you about future expansion. And you need to know that before then. Incidentally, I, I didn't plan this message to line up with that. The Lord in his providence had that plan. I had planned a year ago to be on this text today, but the Lord knows. So truthfully, though, as we think about the text before us, Romans 13, 8 through 10, Paul is using something that all people can relate to, debt, as a bridge to get us to something he wants to talk about that's much more important than money, and that is love. So look at verse 8 again with those eyes. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except 
to love one another. That's really what he wants to talk about. In other words, Paul says that the only legitimate debt that we should and can never pay off is the obligation we have to love. And therefore, the title of the message is The Perpetual, the Never-Ending Debt of Love. And this morning, I want us to examine three perspectives of this love, this debt of love. First, the uniqueness of the debt. Secondly, the terms of the debt. And finally, the payment of the debt. So let's begin with the uniqueness of the debt. Unlike other forms of debt, this debt of love can never be paid in full. Now, when I first got out of college, I was working as a school teacher in Mississippi in public education. You can imagine how wealthy I was growing by the day. But I noticed one of my peers who worked at the same school I did was driving a much nicer vehicle than I was. In fact, much nicer than the rest of the teachers. And he lived in a magnificent home. And so finally, after a few months, we'd become good friends. I had to ask him and I said, brother, I know what you make. How can you live like this? He said, well, Keith, my dad growing up told me you're going to be in debt the rest of your life. You might as well just enjoy it. <laughs> and I thought my own father would not agree with such a thing. <laughs> we didn't grow up like that. Uh, and if you did, uh, it's going to be hard to hear some things I'm going to talk about today. But debt is meant for the Christian to be paid off. Financial debt I'm talking about as quickly as possible. But when we talk about the debt of love that we owe, it can never be paid. John MacArthur compares it to an interest-only loan. You pay on it for years, but you never touch the principal. You still owe as much as you started with. But here's the most wonderful thing about this debt of love. Most of us view financial debt as a burden. In fact, you'll hear that terminology. What's our debt burden? But the debt of love that we owe is not a burden, it's a joy. And we get to take it with us wherever we go, even though we'll never pay it off. Truthfully, this debt of love is what motivates us to obey God in every area of our life, not just with our finances. In fact, Paul calls this love debt the fulfillment of the law. He says, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. That brings us to our second point. The uniqueness of, of this love debt is it can never be paid off and it's a joy rather than a burden. But what are the terms of the debt? Well, the first thing I would say if you have debt, and I'm not Dave Ramsey, by the way, but I think some of those things make sense. If you have debt, you need to get all your bills together and be honest about it, right? Let's see who we owe. If we are supposed to pay our bills, and Paul says we are as Christians, we need to know who we owe to. So put all your bills together and uh, let's ask the question, to, who, to whom do we owe this debt of love? Well, obviously God, right? To Christ. He says uh, we love him because he first loved us. But in this particular concept, uh, this particular passage in context, I think Paul is assuming we know we are to love God. He's talking about the love we're to have for our neighbor. Now listen to this New Testament passage. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. 
The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. I think Paul is sort of duplicating that same sentiment. Now, we could think of hundreds, if not thousands, of commandments and laws in the Bible. And yet, he says, if you can memorize two and obey them, you've fulfilled all of them. The first is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, when Jesus wanted to illustrate this truth, that to love your neighbor as yourself is the fulfillment of the law, he told a parable, an anecdote, a story that we call it the Good Samaritan, right? And by the way, to the people Jesus was speaking to, to call a Samaritan good was the ultimate oxymoron. Samaritans were outcasts and people to be avoided, and yet Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of the story. He, unlike the religious Jews in the story, stopped and was a neighbor to this man who had been beaten and robbed. And He put medicine upon his wounds and took him to where he could find care. And that must have been shocking. And some people have taken that story to an unfortunate conclusion. In the early part of the 20th century, there was a popular doctrine among liberal theologians called the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. It's, it's the idea that what makes us common is humanity that basically taught universalism, that we're all going to end up in heaven one day, so we ought to act like brothers and sisters here. You remember the old Coca-Cola commercial where they sat around the campfire and sang, I'd like to buy the world a Coke? That's the idea. Let's just... Forget each other's differences. Let's hold hands and sing around the campfire. And as beautiful a sentiment it is, it's incredibly naive. And it's not biblical. When Jesus was talking about the family of faith, he said there's not one family, there's two families. In fact, he said of the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. Pretty severe. And so when the Bible speaks of conversion, when a person is born again, one of the things that happens is that we are transferred out of the family of Satan and to the family and the kingdom of God's dear Son. And we become children of God and brothers and sisters in Christ. So R.C. Sproul likes to say the Bible doesn't teach the brotherhood of all men, but it teaches the neighborhood of all men. So who's our neighbor? It's all human beings. We owe a debt of love not only to God, not only to Christ, not only to other Christians. That's assumed in the Bible. We owe a debt of love to all human beings. Last I read, there's about 7 billion of them in the world. So that's quite an obligation. So how long do we owe this debt? Perpetually. Forever. That is until we die, until Christ returns. It reminds me of uh, when I was a child, I can remember... We used to have business meetings after Sunday evening service. And I was five or six and turned around backwards, not listening to what my father was saying up front in the business meeting. But they were going over the annual budget. And I remember they were going line item by line item discussing it until they came to one called miscellaneous. And I thought, I thought I knew everyone in the church. <laughs> but I don't know her. So I asked my dad when we got home what that was, and that reminds me of another person who joined a Baptist church from another denomination, as some of you have, and 
wasn't familiar with our vocabulary either. And so he was in a business meeting. They came to the line item for Lottie Moon. And for those of you who don't know, Lottie Moon was a famous missionary to China and so beloved that we named our annual Christmas offering to support missionaries for her. And this gentleman, the call was made, are there any questions? And this gentleman rose and said, Pastor, I have one question about this line item for this Lottie Moon. Billy, I have several questions. Who is she? How much do we owe her? And when do we pay her off? And so the answer to the question, when do we pay off our debt of love, is never. It's perpetual. It's never ending. Paul says that's okay though. See the juxtaposition he's made. It's not okay not to pay off your financial obligations. But it's, not, it's more than okay never to pay off the principle of love. You just keep paying on it and the more joy you get. Well, let's get down to brass tacks. What does it look like when we pay this debt? What denominations do we use? Verse 9 says, For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up by the saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul is quite simply saying, Paying our debt of love looks like tastes like, smells like obedience to God's commands. That's how we pay our debt, by being obedient to God's commands. Now, he's speaking here of the Old Testament law. If we were to turn to Exodus chapter 20, we would find what we call the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. And if you study the Ten Commandments, you know that some of them speak of our relationship to God, the first four specifically, that we had no other gods before the true God. We're not to make any graven images. We're not to take his name in vain. We remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. And then the, the final six, the second table of the law, speak of our relationship to other humans. We're not to kill them, right? Murder them. We're not to steal from them. We're not to covet their possessions and so on. So Paul here takes four out of that second book of the law. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. Just for examples, not that the others aren't just as important. And here's his point. In the first book of the law, in our relationship to God, that is summed up, Jesus said, by love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Let me ask you a question. Has any human being ever loved God for a millisecond with his entire heart, mind, and soul? No, he hasn't. That's why we sin. Because we don't love God enough. But he loves us enough to send Jesus to die in our place as payment for that sin. And his point is this. If we truly love our neighbor as ourself, that is, if we seek our neighbor's interest the same way we, speak, we, we seek our own best interest. And by the way, you don't have to be taught to seek your own interest. You're born that way. That's what Paul assumes, doesn't he? In Ephesians chapter 5, when he tells husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church, he says, no man ever hated his own body. What he meant by that, when you woke up this morning and your tummy gurgled, you went into the refrigerator and you fed yourself. And if the temperature was a two degrees warmer than you like it, you went to the thermostat and you lowered it. And you looked in the mirror and you saw, I don't want to go out in public, I'll embarrass myself, so you took a bath. You have an interest in yourself, in other words, inherently. He's saying, husbands, you ought to have that same 
level of interest in your wife's well-being. And now here, Paul in Romans 13 takes it to a, a different level. And he says we're to love our neighbor like that. He says if we love our neighbor like we love ourselves, we won't harm his marriage through sexual immorality. If we love our neighbor like ourselves, we won't take his life unjustly. If we love our neighbor like ourselves, we won't covet and steal his possessions. That's what he means when he says these two things, if you do them, you fulfilled the law. But we can't for a millisecond. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need someone to do for us what we could not do on our own. That's why God the Father sent Jesus into the world to be born of a virgin so that he could grow up and be tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, go to the cross as our substitutionary atonement. And then his righteousness, which we don't have, is imputed to us through faith. Well, in application, let me be very specific here. What does it look like to pay the debt of love that we owe to every human? Number one, it means we owe them enough love to tell them the truth. Ephesians 4.15 says we're to tell the truth. This has gospel implications. If our neighbor is on the path to hell, we can't say, oh, I love them too much to confront them. Now, if you love them, you will confront them. But you'll do it, Paul says, in love, motivated by love and with a loving tone. Not only will we tell them the truth about their spiritual needs, we're going to, in the process, meet their physical needs. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 42. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Well, we know Jesus doesn't prohibit borrowing and lending. He just says if someone wants to borrow from you, do it. But of course, we know that ultimately the greatest need that people have are spiritual needs. And the most effective tool Christians have for meeting spiritual needs is prayer. We can't save anybody. We can't convict anyone of sin, but we can pray to God to do it. The Bible says the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We owe it. This obligation, this debt of love that can never be paid, we owe it to our lost friends and neighbors to pray for their salvation. And as we're praying, we should model godliness before them. They need to see what a transformed life really looks like. And one of the greatest evidences of a transformed life is a person who's willing to forgive. We've been studying about that in the Beatitudes here on Wednesday evening. And last Wednesday evening was... Uh, one that was very convicting. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is uh, the other side of the coin of grace. Grace is God giving to us something good we have not earned and have not deserved. Mercy is God's taking away what we do deserve, which is death and hell. But the way that applies in interrelationships between human beings, between Christians and non-Christians, and between Christians and Christians for that matter, is that when we show mercy to someone, we are moved with compassion for the misery they are in because of their sin, and we do something about it. See, it's not just that we have a warm fuzzy or butterflies in our stomach or, or we've moved to tears. It's that those tears move us to action. And the greatest action that we can do for a lost person is tell them about Jesus. It's evangelism, and it's to forgive them when they offend us. 
You see, when we won't forgive a person that has trespassed against us, how in the world are they going to see what Christ's mercy and grace is like? In fact, I think it's very interesting, and we'll close with this. When Jesus was asked by his disciples to teach us to pray, in other words, model for us, Jesus, what our prayer life should look like. In fact, many of us refer to this passage as the model prayer. Now, find it interesting, don't you, that, that in the King James Version, which is an accurate translation of the Greek, he says, forgive us our what? No, not trespasses, debts. Debts. And it's that word that Paul uses here for the debt of love. He equates sin as a debt owed to God that Jesus paid for because we couldn't at the cross and because we were forgiven much, we ought to forgive others. In fact, Jesus was so concerned with that that he told one of the most famous parables about it. Talked about a master who went off to a far country and uh, he told his, his men to invest and when he came back, some of them did, and some showed a return, and others didn't. The one that got the greatest rebuke is the one that, that didn't do anything. He hid his money. And he told another parable about a person who owed a master an incredible sum of money. I mean, just so much you couldn't even calculate it. And he begged for mercy. And you know what? The master forgave him the debt. And you think he would go out and it would be, you know, it's a wonderful life story all over going around kissing the ground. He didn't. He went out and found a man who owed him a piddling amount of money, took him by the neck and started choking the life out of him and said, pay me all you owe. And Jesus rebuked that man in his story and said, so it will be for those who will not show mercy. Friends, if anyone ought to know something about love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness, it's us, isn't it? those who were lost and desperate, helpless and hopeless. We called out to Christ and said, Lord, I owe you a debt I cannot hope to pay in a thousand lifetimes. And he said, I forgive you. Your debt has been paid. Now, don't take away that that debt is trivial. It was a real debt. And do you know how much it cost God? His son. You know what it cost Jesus? His life. Do you know what the redemption payment for your soul was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the scripture says we shouldn't trample underfoot. We shouldn't count it as worthless. It is the most precious thing in the universe. But those of us that have been forgiven, who have that debt wiped away, we ought to be the people who are leading out and showing mercy to others. May the Lord help us to do that in days and years ahead. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this uh, little lesson about debt and money right in the middle of this great treatise on doctrine of justification, Romans 13, 8 through 10, Lord. And it is convicting. It is practical. Father, we ought to be cautious about debt. We ought to pay our bills as Christians because we understand what it is to be forgiven a great debt. And we know that there is freedom in that condition. Father, we thank you for that freedom that our church enjoys right now. Father, we want to be wise as we grow numerically and as we need to add buildings and ministries. Lord, we don't want to run ahead of your will nor fall behind it. James 1.5 says, if anyone needs wisdom, 
we do. Let him ask of God who gives to all men freely. Lord, we're just your servants showing up for duty. We want you to guide us in every decision that we make. Lord, I, I pray that prayer for every family. Father, I don't know, but I suspect there's families in our church that are overextended in debt, made poor decisions, and, and it's causing conflict. And, and Lord, I, I pray you'd help them get on a path of debt freedom. Father, I, I pray that they would take very seriously your command to pay their debts. Father, help them to do that as quickly as possible so that they can have as much freedom as possible to participate generously in what you're doing and what you're calling them to do in the world. Father, we are grateful for your financial provision for this church and for each of us. and We want to be wise stewards. But even more than wise stewards of money, Lord, we want to be wise stewards of our obligations spiritually. And we've seen very clearly today that we owe a debt of love, not only to you and not only to fellow Christians, but to every human on planet Earth. We ought to love them enough to tell them about Jesus. Help us to do so. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.com dot o-r-g